Right on. Thanks, Matt. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, I think it's biblicalbeards.com is, yeah, just go there. Uh, That might actually be a website, so I can't vouch for. (laughs) All right, good morning, everyone. Let's uh, go in our Bibles, turn in our Bibles or turn on our Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 29 today. Uh, We're looking uh, verse by verse at 1 and 2 Samuel, and uh, that primarily is dealing with the life of David. So if you're new here today, that's what we're going through. And today we come to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 29 and also chapter 30. So if you could get yourself situated there uh, in Scripture. But before we get into the Bible today, I wanted to give a bit of an announcement that the pastors asked me to make as far as our plans for this summer as a church. Uh, Many of you know that our church has been organized on a basic quarter system with as far as the main things that we do here uh, in the church. We meet every Sunday, obviously, but in the spring and in the fall, we've traditionally held our small group, life group ministry. So we're in the kind of tail end of that spring quarter right now, and we'll wind up down our life groups in the next few weeks. And then we have, over the last few years, had in the winter, January, February, and in the summer, June and July, a life church kind of midweek service where we all come together, the grill is open, and children's ministry is available, and we study a passage of Scripture over the course of six to eight weeks, however long uh, we have for that particular life church quarter. Uh, You might remember that this last winter we didn't have a life church quarter. We decided that we wanted to try the forums. We had our second one uh, this last Friday, a few conferences, and a few other discipleship-oriented Uh, secondary events, and then we got our life group started a few weeks earlier than we normally do uh, in the spring. And what we're going to do this summer is we're actually going to just kind of scale back a little bit. We're going to have a Tuesday night Bible study here in the sanctuary. Uh, I'm going to teach through first and likely second Corinthians at a very fast pace. Uh, And then the other pastors are going to teach through the book of James during the weeks that I'm not uh, handling the word. And we're going to go through that uh, starting on May 22nd, not just for the summer, but go all the way through uh, the month of September. So I guess uh, maybe in a sense that is the summer. I think summer officially ends at the end of September or something like that. But normally we finish at the end of July, our life uh, church quarter. But we're just going to have a Tuesday night Bible study, May 22nd, all the way through uh, the month of September. And part of the reason for that is that it's been challenging to try to find passages of scripture or books of the Bible that you can cover in just six weeks or eight weeks. And so we felt like we wanted to try just having a little bit longer of a time to just kind of breathe in God's word, kind of set our hearts and our minds upon it. And so that's what we're going to do on Tuesday nights from May 22nd all the way through uh, September. Part of the reason that I feel called to do this kind of thing and to share the word in that kind of way is because in scripture, For instance, places like 1 Timothy chapter 3, we learn that the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth. In other words, we aren't only to be doing good works in the world that we live in. We're to be a sounding place, a place that sounds forth the truth of God's word. And I believe that we live in a time, an era, a generation where people are very confused about God, very confused about how to see the world. And so scripture is helpful uh, to that end. The Bible also says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and helps equip the man or the woman of God to be thoroughly prepared for everything that God has laid before them in life. And so that would help us understand that more Bible can lead to more spiritual growth. It doesn't always do that. It depends upon the preparedness of our own hearts, but more Bible can lead to more growth. So that's why we're going to do that on Tuesday nights. There's a passage of scripture that's always been really meaningful to me as a pastor, because pastors come in lots of different shapes and sizes. And every week you have a million different decisions on what am I going to do as a pastor this week? I think one time they made a list of what the average congregation thought that their pastor should do each week. And I think it totaled like a 110 hour work week or something like that of all the things that a pastor could do, because there's a lot of great things that a pastor could do. But in 1 Timothy 4, Paul told Pastor Timothy of the church in Ephesus, 
He said, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to the exhortation, and to the teaching. And that has always meant a lot to me as a pastor. I believe that the Lord's asked me to read the Bible out loud, to explain the Bible out loud, and to exhort from the Bible as I've explained it. And so that's what we're going to do on Tuesday nights. And if that's something that fits you know, your schedule and your flow, uh, then come on by. We'll have a taco bar available before and after services. And the youth ministry is already meeting on Tuesday nights. That's part of the reason why we're going to meet on Tuesdays so that we don't uh, have to jam up everybody's schedule. We'll just meet together at the same time uh, and in, uh, not in the same place. They're going to meet over there and we're going to meet in here. Uh, but, you know, kind of be together at the same uh, time. So that's what we're going to do uh, this summer for those of you who were thinking about, okay, what's the church going to be uh, doing this summer? There will also be a few other studies going on, one for women on Thursdays, but as far as uh, the main thing uh, that I'll be doing, that'll be on Tuesday nights uh, at 6.30. All right, let's uh, pray and ask God to help us as we look at his word uh, this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 29. Lord, we do just come before you and we pray, God, for your blessing upon uh, the Tuesday nights that we gather together, not only the time in the word, but also the time just kind of hanging out in prayer and in worship and communion happening, Lord, we just pray that you'd really bless that. And Lord, we also ask that as we look into your word today, that you'd speak, Lord, to our hearts. We need your help. We know you're there with your grace targeted toward us as your people, but we need your help, Lord, in receiving it, that we might extend it, Lord, to the people that you've placed in our lives. So we come to you this morning and we ask, Lord, that you would kindly, Lord, graciously bless us with your truth today. We thank you, Lord, and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> kind of my, my first pastoral assignment when I was younger was the church had a, a young adult ministry, and uh, they asked me to, to lead it, I think at the time that I took leadership of it. There were maybe 10 or 12 people that were kind of regularly uh, in attendance. And in the first couple of months, uh, the attendance radically changed as a result of my leadership. Uh, after a couple of months, we were averaging about three or four uh, people uh, each week. It was kind of a discouraging time in my life. But the Lord you know, continue to work in me, and that group began to grow, and I began to grow uh, with that group, and I have very fond memories of that season of life and ministry. And then, I think it was maybe five or six years later down the road in my life, an opportunity opened up to become the leader of our uh, high school ministry here in the church. And so, uh, I th thought about it, and I thought, I think I can do both of those simultaneously, and so I did for a season of time. And one of my favorite things about that season of life or that, the memories that I have of that time were times where I would see someone in that young adult ministry that I was caring for who clearly loved the Lord, clearly you know, wanted to live their lives in obedience to Him and were trying to grow. And, that I, and then when I would go to maybe one of them and say, hey, it seems though like the missing component in your life is that you don't have a good outlet. You don't have a good ministry opportunity. You're just soaking it in, but you need a place to, you know, give. And so I would invite them, you know, every once in a while, hey, would you maybe come and check out the high school ministry and you could maybe serve here. And it was always such a delight to, when that really worked and took and you could see someone who their faith just really came alive as they had an opportunity to be a blessing to, you know, someone else. And I think many of us in this room, we've felt and had that experience in our own lives, not only receiving, but also giving. Many people have used from Israel's topography, and you could use any high and low elevation lake in the world, but in Israel, it's rather extreme because the Sea of Galilee uh, is full of life, but as it has an outlet, the, sea, the uh, Jordan River, that Jordan River flows down into a very low elevation to the S Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is appropriately named because it has no life in it. Uh, it's, it's, it's the Dead Sea for a reason. 
Zion, uh, the Dead Sea has no outlet. There's no place for that water to flow. And many people have used that illustration over the years to describe the healthy Christian life. When you have uh, a place to pour out your walk with the Lord, uh, you're filled with life and you grow. And when you have no outlet, then you can stagnate uh, in your Christian life. But uh, what I want to talk to you about today from David's life is I want to help you see that not only do we need an outlet, but we have to perpetually have an inlet into our lives so that we can be strong with that outlet. Uh, It's one thing to say that we need to give, 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 but it's another thing to first receive from the Lord. And the reason why I'm going to share that today is because that's exactly what's going to happen in David's life. Uh, Just by way of reminder, especially for those of you who haven't been with us uh, maybe the last few weeks, David, at the point in this story, is in a very low place in his life. He has, in a sense, allowed his own thoughts of discouragement to become louder than God's promises, God's word. He's begun to believe that Saul is going to be successful in taking his life and killing him. And because of that, rather than believing that he's going to be the future king of Israel, like God has said, uh, he decided that he needed to run away to the Philistine people. And he became an ally of the Philistines for a period of 16 months living in a village that King Achish of the Philistines gave him, a village called Ziklag. And it all culminated for us last week with a moment where the Philistines said, now let's go fight against the Israelites in battle. And King Achish went to David and said, I want you to join with me. And David said, you know what your servant can do. It appears that David is about to enter into battle against the very Israelite people that God has called him to one day be the, the king of and to protect. And when we read that in 1 Samuel 28, verse 1 through uh, 2, what I shared with you is that the reader, as when you read that, you're like, okay, here's the story of the future king of Israel, and now he's about to, with the Philistines, go fight the people of Israel. The reader of the biblical text is supposed to be shocked. You know, we're supposed to say, oh my goodness, how could that happen? All right? Then the story went sideways and dealt with Saul for a little bit. We saw that, the whole Endor experience and everything with the witch at Endor. That Wasn't that a trip last week? But now we're going to pick up the story of David again. And what we're going to see is David experience God's grace, go get God's grace, and then become a conduit, a pipeline for God's grace. Here's a question I'd love to ask you before we read the passage. Do you believe that God desires not only to give you his grace so you can receive it, but do you believe that God wants to make you a conduit of his grace, a pipeline of his grace, all right? So that's kind of the question, and David is going to become that again in this passage. So let's read it together, starting out in verse 1 of chapter 29. It says, now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, a town called Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. So again, the two armies gathering together, the Philistines probably thinking, okay, Saul's weakened, we can defeat him right now. So they get together for battle. And verse 2, as the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, The commanders of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. All right, so it's real simple. They're all gathering together for battle, and the Philistine commanders, they're kind of checking everything out, and here comes Achish. What you have to realize is that uh, Achish was one of the kings of the Philistines. They had a few different prominent towns, more than likely five of them, and each one of them had a governor who was like the king of that city. So Achish was one of the Philistine lords or kings. And so the commanders of the other towns, they're like seeing Achish, like, okay, here's who Achish brought from Gath, you know, and you can imagine like the Gathite warriors would have been pretty intense because that's where Goliath was from, you know, so they like, you got some big dudes kind of rolling in. And then all of a sudden at the end, there's David with all of these Jewish guys, all these Hebrews. And the Philistine uh, commanders are like, hey, 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 
Who's that guy? You know, he's a Hebrew. We're going to go fight Hebrews. What are all these Hebrews doing here? And Achish is like, don't even worry about it. This guy is so on our team. For 16 months, he's been living with me in my territory. He's been fighting against the people of Israel for 16 months, even though that's not what David had done. That's what David had told him he had done. And so he's like, this guy is so firmly entrenched on our side. I mean, Achish is like beaming with pride. He's like, I caught a big fish when I caught David, you know? So that's kind of the attitude. So verse 4 But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David? of whom they sing to one another in dances. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. So the Philistine commanders, they're a little more, uh, their military mind is a little sharper than Achish's. And they kind of like suggest, they're like, well, hey, don't you think maybe he's tricking you? And don't you think that it's possible that out in battle, he could reconcile himself to his master by turning against us? He's going to be given an incredible military position at the rear so he could turn against us and we'd be decimated. And then they kind of remind Achish, they're like, hey, don't you remember the song that they've been singing and dancing to in Israel? Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And kind of what they're like meaning by that is the thousands and the tens of thousands are Philistines. It's thousands of Philistines and ten thousands of Philistines who have died at this man's hand. And so Achish, verse 6, called David and said to him, as the Lord lives. Isn't that interesting? King Achish, a Philistine lord, refers to Yahweh, refers to God. I think somehow David's relationship with the Lord, however dark it was at this point, had rubbed off a little bit on Achish. And he says, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably that you may not displease the Lord's of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish, verse 9, answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning, with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So Achish goes to David, and he's like, hey David, I got this bad news for you. You know, the Philistine lords, you know, they don't want you to fight with them, uh, but, you know, I need you to know that you're innocent in my sight. You know, he says, you're like an angel of God in my sight, but you got to get out of here. You can't fight with us. But maybe you notice there in verse eight, that David pushes back a little bit. He doesn't seem relieved. He argues with Achish. Hey, what evil have you found in me? I I have proved myself faithful in your sight. But Achish reassures him, look, it's not me. I'd rather have you come to fight with us in battle, but it's these Philistine lords who have decided that you can't go with us, and so you must depart. And David leaves, and the Philistines continue to gather together in battle against the people of Israel. What I want you to observe from this, I think what the reader is meant to to see, is that even though David has not set his heart on finding a way to escape this situation. Even though David seems as if he would love to, at this low point in his life, go into battle against the people of Israel, even though David is desirous at this point of fighting against his own kinsmen and harming the name of God and the reputation that God was trying to build in David, even though that's what David wanted, God did not want that. 
And God stepped in and interceded for David even when David, in his weakness, was not pursuing the deliverance of the Lord. This is one of the first elements of the grace of God. Understanding that there will be moments in our lives where God will save us from our own potential stupidity even when we aren't looking for him to do so. How many of you would confess that? Yep, there's been a time where the Lord steered the events of my life away from a pitfall that I was surely going to enter into. Now, I realize that some of you today are probably saying to yourself, no, that's not the way that it works. It always takes my heart, at the very least, being desirous of that way of escape. It it always takes a little bit of me, even if it's a law of God. But think about the way that you came to Christ. The Bible teaches us in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What that means is that according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, before we came to Christ, we were following our sinful flesh, We were following the course of this world, and we were following the prince of the power of the air. We were not following God. We were not desiring God. We were not longing for God. But when we were in that state, God sent His only begotten Son to die on the cross for us. So in a moment where we were not pursuing God at all, God pursued us. That's how we got saved in the first place. But God, who was rich in mercy and love. Ephesians 2, verse 4. And that same God, who when we were not looking for him to reach into our lives, brought this glorious gospel into our lives. That same God fathers his children once they become believers. And there are times where our beautiful, wonderful Father God will father us and protect us even when we are not looking for him to do so. Listen to these verses from the New Testament. In Jude's epistle, the 24th verse of that little one chapter epistle, this is how he describes God. Listen to this. Jude, verse 24. God is described this way, as him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless. Have you thought of God that way? God is the one who is able to keep me from stumbling and present me blameless. Think of God this way, 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. I quoted this last week a few times. If we are faithless, anybody here ever been faithless? He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Every once in a while I hear someone say, there is nothing that God cannot do. That's not true. He cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his nature. He cannot deny his character. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Or listen to this from Philippians chapter 1. Paul, writing about the Philippian church, said, I am sure of this, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, there are times where God is working on our behalf even when our own walk with him is dysfunctional. The Father is ready. The Father is working. The Father is moving. David couldn't yet see it at this point, but God was faithfully providing a way of escape in David's life. Can you picture God in that way? Can you see God as that Father who is working hard on your behalf, not because of who you are, but because of who His Son is and the blood that you have received upon your life? You know, my children, and I do things for them all the time, that they are not aware of, nor even probably care all that much about. You know, yesterday I was sitting there at the computer and I was balancing the books, right? You know, getting the family budget dialed, you know, paying the bills, stuff like that. I guarantee you, none of them are like, oh, dad, you paid the water bill again? Praise the Lord. Thank you, you know, for that. 
Yesterday I was working through a little thing because summertime's coming and there's a few little camps and stuff they want to do. And Christina said, hey, here's what they want to do. Here's what the totals are. Is there, can we do it or should we not do it? You know, and I'm calculating, doing the math, you know, and all of that. Like, okay, here's what we can do. You know, no one was walking in the room, you know, saying, oh, dad, thank you so much. You're shifting the money around and you're making a way for me to do my stuff. Praise the Lord. You know, no, that's not what's going on. But as a father... You're trying to work for your children, whether or not they're aware of what you're doing in and for their lives. Can we think of God as the good father who is always ready to work on our behalf? All right, so David is protected and preserved by the Lord in that episode, but let's see what happens next, starting in chapter 30, verse 1. It says, now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, remember Ziklag was their hometown for 16 months. It's where they lived with their wives and their children if they had them. And it says when they got there, and this was an 80 mile journey during those three days. So they're very tired. And when they get there, it says the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, verse 6, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And God answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. Now what happens here in this movement of the story is that David and his men, after a three-day journey arrive back to their hometown. And what they find is very disheartening. They discover that their city, Ziklag, has been burned with fire and their family members have been taken away into some form of captivity. The Amalekites had done this. And so everybody's distressed. And as they're distressed, because they've lost everything, rumors begin to spread, whispers begin to spread. And pretty soon a contingent begins to ask for David to be stoned to death. They're about, they're about to kill their leader. One of the most loyal human beings in history, David, in his loyalty to Saul, is about to be killed by his own disloyal followers. It's a fascinating movement. And David, in that moment of despair, he strengthens himself in the Lord. One of the ways that he does it is he asks for the priest to come, and he's got the ephod with him, which we looked at in a previous study. It was an Old Testament era way for them to seek the will of the Lord. And the priest with that ephod helped David, and David asked, should I go? Should I overtake them? Will I defeat them? And, and God responds and says, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. I hope that when you read that God answered David, there's a little part of your heart that just says, God is so kind. God is so incredible in that here is this man who is on the run for almost two years from the Lord. This man who has ignored the promises of God for a couple of years in his life. This man who has disregarded God's word and God's promises and has be behaved in a way that is disrespectful to the name of the Lord. And the first moment that he turns back to God and cries out to the Lord in purity of heart and strengthens himself in the Lord, God speaks to this man. It says in Psalm 103, verse 10, that God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. How many of us can say amen to that? He was hearing the voice of the Lord in a time where I think many of us would say he did not deserve to hear the voice of the Lord. But God opened up his heart and spoke with his man, David. 
But what I want you to see here is that God's grace was being funneled toward David, but David made a decision to go out and receive God's grace in his life. You see, at this point, David had no one to turn to. Samuel was dead. Saul wanted to kill him. David's family was gone. Jonathan, his kindred spirit and best friend, was inaccessible to him. And now his 600 men want to take his life. He has no human being that he can turn to, that he can pour out his cares and concerns and his heart to. But what does David do in that moment? I love the little phrase there in verse 6. It says that David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. This is a very important phrase in David's life. It's a very important part of David's character. He had the ability to turn to God in a moment where he had no one else to turn to and strengthen himself in the Lord. Other translations say that same sentence in this way. Some say, but David found strength in the Lord his God. Some say David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. And some say David drew strength from the Lord his God. Listen, this is one of the most massive keys to the Christian life. You see, God's grace is present. It says in Ephesians 1 verse 3 that if you're in Christ Jesus, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So every spiritual blessing that exists is already ours in Christ Jesus. Isn't that incredible? That's amazing. All right, but part of the Christian life is learning how to, even though God has given and determined that we are standing on that grace, that we are in Christ, that that favor is ours, part of the Christian life is learning how to go out and receive the grace that is already ours, to strengthen ourselves in the name of the Lord. A great illustration for this, to help you understand what I'm talking about, comes from the people of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness with Moses. They were asking God for food. They were hungry. And so God decided to bless them with a substance called manna six days of the seven-day week. It says this in Psalm 78 about the manna. It came from God. It floated down from heaven. It was just there on the ground. It appeared with the morning dew. Listen to this in Psalm 78. This is how God describes the manna. It says, Yet God commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven, and He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. Let me ask you, after you heard that quotation, do you think that God thought that he was the one who was giving the manna to the people of Israel? Absolutely. He says, this is angelic food. I opened up the windows of heaven. I poured it out. I gave it to you. I delivered it to you every single day that you wandered in that wilderness. But here's what Exodus 16, verse 16 says. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. You see, God gave it. No man would take credit for it, but God wasn't going to shove the manna into their mouths and put it into their bellies. No, he said, here it is, but you must come out of your tent. You must go out and collect it and eat it for yourself. In his book, The Discipline of Grace, Jerry Bridges used the illustration of the two wings of an airplane. And he used the illustration to describe the way that we pursue the Lord. Uh, one wing is representative of uh, dependence upon God. God is going to do it. God will give it to us. God will bless us. But the other wing is our own discipline in our pursuit of what he has given to us. Now, if I had to describe it this way, I know this breaks the analogy completely apart, but God's wing is really huge, and Nate's wing is like this little thing over here. But, but that little part of me going out and saying, God, I want to hear from you. I want to receive from your word. I'm going to pour out my heart before you in prayer. That little portion activates God who has already predetermined to bless me with his grace. Paul said it this way in Philippians 2 verse 12. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
In other words, you're saved. If you're saved, then work out that salvation. Act like it. Be like it. Do the things the Lord has put inside of you, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. My prayer is that you and I would grow in understanding how to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, our God. To come to Him in prayer. Peter said to the people he wrote to in 1 Peter chapter 5, that we are to cast our care upon Him because He cares for us. Now that in prayer, we can go to the Lord and talk to Him about the different things going on in our lives. But some of us have a difficult time even being quiet for just 10 minutes. Or even talking to the Lord for just 5 minutes, just giving Him a little space in our life. But His grace is there. That manna is there. He's asking us to come out to seek Him, to enjoy Him. So not only was David a recipient of God's grace, but he went out and got God's grace. He didn't earn it, but he went out to collect it. So let's read what happens next in David's life. Verse 9, it says, So David set out, and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were, notice this, too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. We're going to see these 200, too exhausted men in a moment, but we leave them in verse 11 when it says, they found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David, and they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink, and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. That was, those were the magic words there at the very end of his announcement. And we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, verse 15, will you take me down to this band? You know, David's like, I'd love to get to know these guys. Do you know where they are? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. Now, I want you to notice that for these three days in this young Egyptian man's life, you know, he'd been left for dead by his master as he was there starving for those three days, I'm sure he said to himself, God has forgotten me. These are the worst days of my life. But what you have to understand is actually these were the best days of his life because he was about to join David rather than be in the company that David was about to judge. So this is a real powerful moment in this young man's life. But what I want you to see with David is that something has shifted in his life. There they are, wandering through the wilderness, looking, trying to track these Amalekites, and they see this young Egyptian slave, and they extend a lot of grace to him. They give him some food, they give him some water, and it ends up being a great blessing to him as they extend that mercy to this young man. You see, as we receive the grace of God, we are then designed and called to extend the grace of God to others. There was a day in the life of Jesus where a religious lawyer came to him and said, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer, in an attempt to prove his lawyerness, said to Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? That's such a us question. You know, like, okay, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. Draw the circle. Who is that? That's because that's, I, d- I definitely don't want to love anybody outside of that circle. So show me that circle. What is it? 10 feet, 15 feet away, 30 feet away? Who's my neighbor? So Jesus told a story. Sometimes we call it a parable, but it doesn't say it was a parable. It could have been a true story. He told a story of a, of a, of a man who was traveling from Jerusalem, high in elevation, down to Jericho. And on the road, he was beaten. 
by robbers and left for dead. And a priest came and saw him and went to the other side of the road and passed by. And a Levite came and saw him and went to the other side of the road and passed by. But then finally, a Samaritan, someone who religiously in Jesus's time and day and culture was a religious outcast, the Samaritan saw him, cleansed his wounds, bandaged him, put him on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and paid for a few days of hospice from the innkeeper for this man. And then Jesus, listen to this, asked this question. He said to the lawyer, who do you think of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? You see, what Jesus was saying, it seems, is you have the question all wrong. You're asking who is my neighbor. But the question Jesus wants to ask is, who was acting like a neighbor? Who was being the neighbor? We're not supposed to be looking around saying, who technically am I supposed to love? We're to look into our own hearts and say, am I behaving as Christ would have me behave towards those who are hurting and downcast and broken in this world? And the thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the greatest good Samaritan who ever lived. He's the outcast of the religious order of the day, rejected by all of them, and he came to the broken and bloodied and hurting and left for dead humanity that was here on the planet. And he came and through his own death and his own sacrifice at great cost to himself, provided a way for us to be able to live eternally with God. And the reason I'm pointing that out to you is because so many times people think, you know, the church should just stop trying to teach people what the truth is. The church should just go out and just do good things. You know, plant, uh, uh, dig wells, and do acts of justice, and care for widows and orphans, which definitely we must do. But if we do that, without receiving the grace from Jesus, without receiving the gospel from Jesus, we're going to dry up and we won't have anything to give. No, you must receive from the ultimate good Samaritan to actually be a good Samaritan is the point that I'm trying to make. And David had become just that. He was giving uh, to this man. Now let's read on and see what happens next in the story. It says in verse 16, And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. So these Amalekites are just having a big old party. They have no idea. Their party is about to end. And David, verse 17, struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. The the idea there is that there was such a large number that David and his 400 men defeated that for 400 to get on camels and escape, that was a small number in comparison with the larger number that David and his men defeated. In verse 18, David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds. And the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. The same guys who wanted to kill David a couple days earlier, they're like, man, David's the hero. This is David's spoil. So they have a big party. They're celebrating. Then David, verse 21 came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And David came near to the people. Uh, When David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David. So there was, I don't know if they had like badges or what, but there was a group of guys inside the group of 400 who were the wicked and worthless fellows. You know, here they come. They got another idea. And they said to David, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. 
except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. So here's the idea of these guys. You know, they get back to the 200 who were too exhausted to go any further. They couldn't even cross the brook Bezor. And when they get back to them, a wicked and worthless contingent, they're like, hey, we're not going to give them any of the stuff that we fought for. We rolled up our sleeves. We fought. We risked our lives. They stayed back. They were too tired, whatever. They're not the kind of soldiers we need. We'll give them their wives and their children, and we'll just send them on their way. But we're not going to give them any of the spoil. Let's see how David responds. Verse 23, but David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. Notice how David felt about all that spoil. The text earlier said David recovered all in three different ways. David recovered all. David uh, gathered all. But here he says, no, the Lord gave it to us. He has preserved us and given us into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the luggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. Now, I've been telling you about receiving the grace of God so that you can become a pipeline of God's grace. This, to me, is one of the greatest examples of it in this text. Because David here, he hears this thing, you know, that's happening. Like, hey, we're not going to give these guys any of the spoil. And David looks and he's like, look, here's a new rule. It actually was so popular, it became like a law in Israel until the time of the guy who wrote this. And, and, the, and the, the thing that David said was, here's what we're going to do. Whatever the people who went into battle get and spoil, they have to divide it evenly with the people who stayed behind to guard the baggage. I think the New Living Translation says what David said in verse 24 very clearly for us. He says, we share and share alike those who go to battle and those who guard the equipment. All right, the reason I'm pointing that out is because the text earlier told us a couple of times that these guys were not staying behind so that they could guard the equipment. They stayed behind because they were pooped. They were just too tired. They're like, we can't go on anymore. I don't know if some of them were like, man, I can't swim. You know, or, or what. But, they, you know, they've been traveling for three days. They're just like, I can't make it anymore. 400 could, 200 could, and they were too exhausted to go on. But David looks at them and he says, no, 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 it's not that you were too exhausted. It's that you guys were staying behind to guard all the supplies. You know, kind of thing. This is really cool. This is very kind of David. Why is he talking like this? Why is he talking like this? This is how people who are receiving God's grace speak about others. Because they understand that this is how the Lord has spoken about them. This is how God is. Do you remember when Gideon was hiding as he threshed wheat? He was hiding from the Midianites, and an angel of the Lord came to him and said, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. He's hiding. He's terrified. But God sees something different. Hebrews 11 is the textbook for all of this. There's a place in Hebrews 11 that tells us, Sarah receive strength to conceive seed by faith. I don't know if you've read the story of Sarah and Abraham becoming pregnant, but it doesn't really strike you when you're reading it as this story of great faith from Sarah. In fact, whenever God announced, even in your old age, you're going to have a child, she laughed. She laughed at the promise of God. It was like so notable that they named their son that God eventually gave them, Isaac, because Isaac's name means laughter. It's like they all knew, like, I laughed at what God said. But years later in Hebrews 11, God's like, you know what happened? Sarah, by faith, conceived. She had this rock-solid belief in God. I think if Sarah's reading Hebrews 11, she'd be like, what? That's No, that's not what happened. But that's what God saw. It says also in Hebrews chapter 11 that Isaac, that same Isaac that was born from Sarah, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau by faith. 
If you read that by itself, you'd think that there was this moment where Isaac, with all this faith, he's like, I am choosing to bless the younger Jacob in front of the older Esau because that's what God has told me to do, and I'm being obedient to God. And that's not at all the way it reads in the Old Testament. There was a moment where Jacob like realized his dad Isaac was about to bless Esau, and so Jacob put on goat skin on his arms and on his neck so that he could be all hairy like Esau. I mean, Esau was a hairy dude apparently, and he he, like makes this stew and he puts on some of Esau's clothes and he comes in because Isaac is blind by that time of his life, and Isaac says, "Man, you sound like Jacob, but you smell like Esau and you feel like Esau. Are you really?" Esau and Jacob says yeah it's me and Isaac blesses Jacob thinking it's Esau and years later God says by faith by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau it says also there in Hebrews chapter 11 that by faith Moses forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king. He made this big decision, it says in Hebrews chapter 11, to ditch Egypt and its culture and all of that. And man, we just praise Moses for that decision. But when you go back and you read of what happened, Moses accidentally killed an Egyptian, buried him in the sand, word got out about what he had done, and the Egyptians, Pharaoh's household, wanted to arrest Moses for it. And Moses was like, I think this is a good time to go forsake Egypt and live in the wilderness for 40 years. But God looks at Moses and says, man, this guy, I love his faith. You see, God over and over again sees something in us that we can't even see in ourselves. He says in his word that we, if you're a believer today, are justified and sanctified and glorified. Christina, she loves me a lot, but she has never said to me, you are glorified. (laughs) But God looks at my life, God looks at your life, and he sees us already as seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That is a grace lens with which God looks upon his children. And David had received that grace from God. I think he knew I kind of shouldn't even be here. I failed the Lord so much. But as he'd received that grace, he became a pipeline of that grace and gave it to the people in his life. My prayer is that we would do the same, that we'd become extensions of God's grace and mercy. All right, let's close by reading these last few verses to see what happened last in the story. It says, when David, verse 26, came to Ziklag, He sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Eroer, in Sifmoth, in Eshteoma, in Rachel, in the cities of the Jeremielites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Aphak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. These are all places in southern Judah, Incidentally, these will be the people who make David king first. He'll be anointed as king first here, and then years later for all of Israel. And he sends them all these gifts, partly to say thank you for their protection of him in the past, but also partly to say, hey, I'm your king, your future king, and I want to care for you. You're my flock. This is what God's grace does for us. It helps us give grace to the people that he's called us to care for. So again, it's one thing to pursue an outlet, but if you have outlet after outlet after outlet without the inlet of God's grace in your life continually, you'll burn out. You must receive from the Lord. And as you receive, you'll have something to give. So God, we thank you for this man, David, and we're asking, Lord, that you do that same thing in our lives, Lord, that you would make us people who there's a pipeline flowing from us to other people lord a pipeline of grace that we be conduits of the gospel conduits of the grace of god and so lord we pray for that and lord if there's a part of us that 